This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. As relevant as the work of F.A. Hayek is to our present controversies, that work took place in a particular time and place, and understanding those circumstances can help us understand some of what motivated the late Nobel laureate. Peter Betke's new book is F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy, and Social Philosophy. The book is available now. We spoke last month. It wasn't really until uh, the 1970s that people began to reconsider uh, Hayek and to think that in, in, you know, in the collapse of the, the Keynesian consensus, we have there was a there was a gap, a void, and it, it seemed that you know something at least in intellectually had to fill that void. And uh, Hayek had been speaking for a long time and writing for a long time about uh, how we ought to think about uh, planning, how we ought to think about institutions. And you said you point out that he was at least at first blush right then vindicated by history given the the breakdown of the that consensus. But is he still vindicated uh, by history and or have we seen significant uh, challenges to the project that he put out there? Uh, well, first, uh, I think it's important to uh, trace the arc of Hayek's career, which kind of follows a Jungian archetype because he has a meteoric rise, a crushing defeat, and then a resurrection, um, which makes him one of the interesting intellectuals that you can imagine. So you can, um, in the back of the book, I have a citation pattern studies, and you can see that in the 70s, his citations spike. And then in the 1989, 1990, 1991 period, his citations spike again. Um, and I imagine that if you follow that out further, you look into 2008, 2009, you'll see the citation pattern spike again. And so what does those reflect? It reflects the breakdown of the Keynesian consensus in the 1970s and the search for a micro foundations of macroeconomics, which Hayek was already practicing in prices and production. He was the alternative figure to Keynes. Um, he lost that debate. But in the 1930s, he also was engaged in the market socialism debate. And so with the fall of communism, people return again to Hayek's kind of ideas. Um, but then they think they have absorbed what he has to say, and then he gradually moves on. And then we have the financial crisis in 2000 and. 8, 2007, 2008, 2009, and again, his, his uh, you know, citations spike again, um, eight at this time by the rap video as well, which, uh, you know, uh, brought a lot of attention, but I'm talking about more of his scientific impact. And you even saw in the wake of the financial crisis, you know, people like Robert Schiller and, and uh, other uh, invoke part of Hayek's language, uh, you know, return to the worldly philosophy was a title of one of Schiller's paper. Um, a, uh, there's another paper um, that was about the pretense of knowledge in macroeconomics that was by a very well-known mainstream economist. And so Hayek's ideas get debated around when Stiglitz published his book on wither socialism. Hayek is one of his main adversaries that he's interacting with. Well, that book was written on the heels of the collapse of the communist system and stuff. So when you have these stark uh, economic uh, seismic events, you know, sort of the um, the Great Recession or the stagflation of the 70s or the collapse of communism in the late 1980s, Hayek all of a sudden becomes 
a figure people talk about again. Is it like uh, somebody going to the doctor during a recession? We, we understand that the data says that people uh, take better care of themselves uh, in, in recessions in some ways. Is it just an attempt to go back to uh, a more fundamental way of looking at economics and, and how we all interact in, uh, in that capacity? It's a breaking down of a complacency that people felt comfortable with. A broken clock can get the time right twice a day. And so the fact that Hayek was uh, suggesting that these things uh, were going to come to pass uh, in his writings, um, at one level, it's like a broken clock getting the time right twice a day. At another level, maybe he has insights. Part of the story that I try to tell in the book is that while Hayek might have had notoriety, his scientific program hasn't been fully absorbed yet. And because of that, his scientific program still has evolutionary potential for the way we think about doing economics and the, and the social sciences and humanities in the 21st century. And so it's not like a closed chapter. A lot of these uh, kind of notoriety moments are, oh, this old guy said these things. We should have paid attention to him. Let's read what he said in the old days. Oh, we learned that. Now let's move on. And my argument is you're not quite getting what he said because if you got what he said, that would change the way you understood the institutional structures that gave rise to these seismic events. And so we have a lot of evolutionary potential in Hayek, and that's what I'm trying to do. So as we follow this this uh, meteoric rise from, you know, the, his time in Vienna to his time at the London School of Economics to his kind of uh, defeat in the 1930s and 40s by market socialism on the one hand, Keynesianism on the other hand, um, and then his uh, years in the wilderness, which sound weird, you know, writing uh, The Constitution of Liberty and, and Counter-Revolution of Science and these books that all came out while he was at the University of Chicago. And then the rise again, you know, when he's over now in Freiburg and winning the Nobel Prize and, you know, uh, and whatnot. Um, those are kind of stories that are arcs, but then you have to put on top of it how the intellectual debates that he was engaged in led to evolution of his own thought. And part of the story I'm trying to tell in the book is the evolution of Hayek's thought um, as uh, him uh, dealing with frustrations of his previous efforts to answer these questions and inability to communicate fully to other people, therefore he gets another bite of the apple, and that this is what leads to this evolutionary potential. Um, I have as one of the appendixes to the chapter on his business cycle theory, a title, uh, appendix called What Would Hayek Do? And it explains Hayek's evolution of his monetary thought all the way from his earlier writings on monetary stabilization till he gets to denationalization of money. You know, that's a, you know, a marathon to run and Hayek's intellectual ideas run that marathon and he came up with those most radical ideas in his later decades rather than in his early decades. You think most of the time people are more radical when they're younger, they become conservative intellectually as they get older. Hayek's ideas and his career show the opposite. He starts out more conventional and becomes more unconventional as he gets older. How is that informed by observations of, of the day? So I think this is the interaction between the 
um, you know, the history that he was living through, the efforts to try to do policies that are similar to the ones that he, none of it's a perfect thought experiment, by the way, but, you know, putting those through, but then finding frustration with the inability to do it. So if you think about what he's trying to do with money, he's trying to bind the monetary authority so that they follow what he called neutral money. Um, which in some sense is to match the money supply and the money demand um, and to make sure that money is as neutral as could be possible. Money itself is never neutral, which is the trick because one money is one half of all exchanges. You screw around with money, you screw around with all the exchanges. But if we could somehow uh, get money to be as neutral as possible, then that would lead to a kind of more stable economic environment, have less macro volatility. And this is what Hayek is trying to get at. And so during different phases of his career, he's a gold standard guy. At other phases, he's, you know, a market monetarist. Uh, at other phases, you know, he's he's sort of following a Friedman-like K percent rule. Um, but he becomes increasingly frustrated with the ability to bind a government to those rules, um, especially since government is a monopoly supplier of the currency. And so he becomes frustrated and argues that perhaps the only time we could ever have monetary freedom is if we got rid of the money, the uh, monopoly supplier of the currency. And and think about that. that. That's an idea that he came up with in the 1970s at the back end of his career, right? And so it's a phenomenal example of a lifetime learning. Hayek was a lifelong learner. And what I try to communicate in the book is this sense to all of us to be lifelong learners, to constantly learn from the interaction of ideas, the interaction of events, and to see the blending between those to be able to go forward um, and make arguments based on logic and evidence and wherever that takes us. Was part of, uh, and to, like you you note in your books uh, more than one time, this is not an intellectual history, but I feel like we're getting there in, in, a, in a sense, uh, was part of the fact that he felt comfortable or felt less uncomfortable with these more radical ideas later in his career, was part of that driven by watching a consensus move a bit in his direction? I, um, I'm not sure that that's the, as much as the case, as much as the frustration of previous efforts to try to bind government discretion and the inability to, to successfully tie the ruler's hands, so to speak. So he wasn't, he wasn't uh, tipping his hat to uh, these ideas much earlier necessarily? Not necessarily, I don't think. I, th I, I mean, if I understand your question correctly, I mean, the reason why I say the book is not a, a proper intellectual history is because I'm holding intellectual history at a certain standard, uh, which is uh, from Quentin Skinner um, and the idea of putting ideas in context and the way in which you have to do intellectual history to do that. And um, what I'm trying to do, there's no doubt that my book is asking two simultaneous questions. One of them is, does economics have a useful past? That's history of economic ideas. And does the past have a useful economics? Does having a good economics shed light on what these events should have been understood to be a kind of idea? And I try to argue in the affirmative on both and that Hayek's career is a very a uh, great example to study the evolution of economic thought throughout the 20th century. Um, the way I put it at, at, at one point in the, in the book is that there's a, a book that came out about a year and a half ago now um, called uh, 
exact thinking and dement at times. And it's uh, by a guy named Siegfried, who's who's um, a professor of mathematics at University of Vienna, and he's trying to explain the Vienna Circle and the way that they had an answer to these sort of crazy events of the interwar years in and uh, the fin de sickle Vienna and then the interwar years. Um, and I try to argue that the Vienna Circle had its answer and Hayek had his answer. And so there is this other answer to how do we get exact thinking in demented times. And the 20th century in many ways is demented times. It's a, a period of time of tremendous progress, but also tremendous inhumanity um, that uh, people uh, you know, were experiencing. So if you look at World War I, World War II, the depression, cold, the, the, the communist experience, the Cold War, all of this, and you total up the human suffering that took place, it's immense. At the same time, you know, we're able to have you know, cell phones and travel, you know, uh, transcontinentally and, you know, about of the eye and all these things. And so it's kind of amazing what's happened in terms of material progress of the 20th century. And how does someone square all that stuff up? Well, that's the the world that Hayek lived in, but it's also the world Friedman lived in, the world that Keynes lived in to some extent. I mean, he died, you know, before the half of the century. So he only saw half of it, but he saw a lot of that inhumanity was all done right in that first part. And so how does that affect a thinker? That was one of the things that was going on in my head, you know, because you're having these interlockers, these debate partners, you know, and some of them are older than you, some of them are younger than you, and you're debating with them. How do you then try to, you know, adjust and change? One of the key things that turned me on to this idea was Hayek has a great line about his relationship with Mises in those interviews uh, that he did for UCLA. And he says, working in close proximity with a scholar that you value, who you agree with their conclusions, but disagree with how they got to their conclusions, was a great stimulus for his own research program. And you start thinking about that and you think of your own teachers and other people that you interact with and the positions that they have. And it is pretty amazing, this inner interplay between people. And so what I wanted to do was see how Hayek's, along this arc that I was talking about before, how his ideas evolved, how they changed. And so it's not really a book about the debates that he was involved in or a book about him as a person, but instead just where these ideas come from, what, they're, what problem situation they're trying to address, and how they deepen, in my estimate, how they deepen in insight about the world throughout his career rather than getting, you know, uh, more stayed in the position. It's a constantly evolving one. You and uh, Matt Mitchell produced a book called Applied Mainline Economics. Yeah. And part of that project, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to sort of provide some chicken soup for the young economist soul. Yeah. And, uh, you know, young economists are trained in very technical means of producing a number, and of course, we all know the old joke about economists. We know they have a sense of humor because they go three places past the decimal. Um, but in terms of how economists practice today, in your view, what of the Hayekian project still remains to be fully absorbed? So the the main idea in the book, in a nutshell, is that Hayek was led in these technical debates and economics to emphasize the institutional framework, which serves as the background against which economic activity plays out. 
And that the older economists, Adam Smith and David Hume and all the way up to John Stuart Mill, they understood and paid attention to the intellectual framework, the institutional framework that economic life took place. So economics is about exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. In the 20th century, economics becomes more about a technical idea about the exhaustion of exchange opportunities, the exploitation of least cost technologies. So you get efficiency points and you treat the institutions as background so much so that it becomes a given, which then becomes forgotten. And so what Hayek is trying to say is, hey, hey, we can't forget that the way in which people engage in exchange, pursue their productive specialization and peaceful cooperation is a function of the institutional environment within which they find themselves. The unique thing about Hayek was in the second half of the 20th century, that emphasis on the institutional framework came roaring back into economics, led by people like Armin Alchin focusing on property rights, Jim Buchanan focusing on politics, Ronald Coase telling us we had to focus on law, right? But in when I tell you to think about each of those kind of examples, the real thrust of their argument is that the institutional environment of property rights, of politics, of the law structures the incentives that we face. Hayek, in addition to this structure of incentives, wanted us to think about how those alternative institutional environments impact our learning environment. How do we learn? How do we come to know how to pursue our self-interest within those environments? And so he, uniquely among the theorists, focused on what I call here epistemic institutionalism. And it's that epistemic institutionalism that's at the core of where his ideas need to go forward in economics, as far as I'm concerned, um, and in particular, how alternative institutional environments impact our learning when we recognize that we live in complex systems, not simple systems, but complex adaptive systems. And so the focus of our analytics needs to be on change, on adaptation to change, adjustments to change, and that's all about learning. And when you think about that, if that's your focus, then that's going to affect your methodology. It's going to affect your uh, analytical tools that are in your toolkit. So if the toolkit is one which is about uh, simultaneous equation systems, which really can very, very effectively derive a point, right, a static point, a stasis, that's not very helpful if what we're trying to talk about is change. It's extremely helpful to give us a point, a end state, but it's not very helpful to give us about process. And so part of my argument in here is that economics needs to move in a more process, complex, adaptive direction with a focus not just on the structure of incentives that agents face, but on the learning mechanisms by which they come to know how it is that they can achieve the goals that they're trying to pursue. I think a lot of economists are probably, in a way, humbled and disappointed to read and appreciate some of the, the big points that Hayek had to make because, in some ways, what he's actually doing is saying, the toolkit you thought you had isn't nearly as robust as you thought. Yes. Yeah, so he makes some very stark uh, claims, uh, some of which are in his Nobel Prize uh, lecture, which I think... Uh, people would pay, very much pay to re, to revisit and read carefully. Um, so one of them in there is the claim that uh, the discipline that looks most scientific is actually least. 
And the disciplines that look the least scientific may in fact be the most when we're dealing with the human sciences and complex phenomena. And that's just, just based on the humility you you actually, right, you must give to the process. Right. To the yes. And as he says in there, he, in another place, he says, nobody can be a good economist who's only an economist. And in fact, the economist who claims to be a good economist who's only an economist is a downright danger to society. And he goes further in that in that essay and and uh, makes the claim that unless we fix this disease, intellectual disease, um, we uh, threaten to become tyrants over our fellow citizens and destroyers of civilization. Now, just keep that in mind. That's in his Nobel Prize address in which he's the pretense of knowledge is an attack on the discipline of economics. Because as he said in The Fatal Conceit, um, you know, the, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And so... Hayek in this regard is is using, um, you know, an expert critique of expertise to try to get us to be more humble um, and more appreciative of the framework. And so the metaphor he uses in the Nobel Prize address is that we should view ourselves as gardeners, not as engineers. And, you know, now it's important when you're growing a good garden that you don't let it overcome by weeds. So he's not passive in response to it, but we have to respect the nature. We have to be careful and just make the environment be or the ecology be uh, acceptable to adaptation and change rather than trying to engineer it. And and also have humility about the scale of, at which you, we can operate. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's. In the book, I, you know, this is taking Hayekian ideas and maybe going further than what Hayek himself would have done, um, you know, because as I said, the book's not about Hayek, it's about Hayekianism in some sense. And what I try to argue at the end of the book in a chapter on the restatement of liberalism or reconstruction of a liberal project is I argue for kind of a radical decentralization uh, built on uh, sort of the ideas of overlapping competing jurisdictions or another way to think about it is like Chandran Kukathas's The Liberal Archipelago and the idea of having these competing you know, different communities or whatever, as long as no one community can lord over another community, you can respect a lot of diversity in the communities. This is like Nozick's third section of anarchy, state and utopia as well. And that that's what we got to push for, because it's only at that local and most local level that you can access these kind of knowledge uh, about the way in which we could interact with each other. And so we have to have a generality norm, which governs over the, all the communities, which says the way they interact with each other. But then internally to them, they have this local knowledge about how they want to interact. Given what you've laid out about the the projects that Hayek uh, did manage to get into a more mainstream thinking and the projects that are have yet to be fully absorbed or fully appreciated for what they uh, what the humility that they might provide um, what does that tell us about what we're going through politically um, not necessarily economically but in, in terms of watching our institutions uh, be tested in a pretty significant way well I mean I so I try to argue in the latter half of the book about the reconstruction of the liberal project and I in the chapter, that's on that I take on the current um, situation of having to do with right-wing and left-wing populism um, that I 
contrasts with true radical liberalism. And I think Hayek's ideas, if you read Intellectuals and Socialism, it's an invitation to the young scholars to pick up the banner of radical liberalism, to to think utopian-like rather than constrained to whatever's politically possible, and to offer a vision of a free society which would challenge the existing uh, sort of uh, uh, complacency about the existing set of institutions. And so I try to run with that and talk about a vision of true radical liberalism for the 21st century, one that begins, as I say over and over again, you know, liberalism number one thing is liberal. It's a, it, it begins with our that we're one another's equals, that we have basic human equality uh, before the law, that instead of uh, the idea that any one of us has a red phone to God to have truth in politics to impose on others, we're going to reject that. And so we're just going to agree to the general rules about how we interact with each other, which means we're not going to be able to violently you know, stop one another's. But inside of that, we're going to basically let communities and individuals and their families decide how they want to live their life the way they want to live their life and pursue this. And, and I think institutionally, in order to protect that, the best way to do that is through these overlapping competing jurisdictions to have constant uh, contestation at various all levels. And I think if we push that to its logical extreme, you could actually see an extremely radical kind of restructuring of the liberal project rather than the older vision of the liberal project as being just strictly the way the founding fathers envisioned it or something. Right, because you look at uh, our interesting times that we live through today and compare that to the 1930s and this feels like pretty small ball by comparison. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes and no, right? I mean, it's, it's um, we face real serious problems in our country and we're not having an adult conversation about how to deal with those problems. And those problems, from my point of view, from an economist's point of view, are, are the idea of the fiscal gap. Um, that is the promises that governments have made um, and the ability for the government to pay those promises and what happens when that bill comes due. The other one is the end game strategy of the extraordinary measures of the Fed that were given to it after uh, 2008. And the third one is uh, basically a version of structural inequality that has emerged because we've become a more rent-seeking society than a contract-based society. Um, this is like what Zengalis argues about in in his uh, uh, you know various works about a people's capitalism or whatever. Is that the problem? Is that you know. There was a time when the United States was based more on a contract base, and now it's more of connection based. Who do you know helps you more than what you know. And we need to sort of change all of that back to an idea where we have a more permissionless innovation rather than a rent-seeking you know, society governing our economy. And I actually think these three things are interconnected to one another, the fiscal gap, the, the uh, extraordinary measures of the Fed, and the structural inequality, all of which cut to, you know, uh, thwart economic development and growth. And now that much said, let me also remember I said the demented times. We also live in a, in a world of tremendous technological progress of opening up of countries that previously didn't have trade, uh, you know, or open to the global economy. And so we have Smithian forces and Schumpeterian forces that serve as tailwinds 
to push the plane forward. And then we have these political forces, which are serving as headwinds to slow the tra- uh, the plane down. And as long as the tailwinds are pushing faster than the headwinds, we'll continue to make progress. Tomorrow will be better than today. But it seems that with this rise of right wing and left wing uh, po- uh, you know, uh, populism, that the headwinds are getting stronger. And if they do things like, for example, curtail the benefits of trade through tariffs and protection and things like that, or if they curtail the developments of technology through regulations and and blockages and, uh, you know, other kinds of things, you're going to end up by having the headwinds get stronger than the tailwinds. Right now, the tailwinds are still better than the headwinds. And so we're making progress. We're going forward. But there's ominous signs out there that there's a lot of, especially in right-wing populism and left-wing populism that agitates against the forces that produce the tailwinds, and they'll produce headwinds, which will, in fact, do damage to the economy. And the other thing just is that there is a kind of a, a, a kind of a slow accretion of the institutional robustness because of previous because of the law of precedent, okay? So one of the things to think about is our constitution and our form of government was built to be able to withstand an idiot in office, right? That's what it's built to do. Um, And, you know, Hayek very much talks about this and Adam Smith talks about this as he says, you know, the Smithian agenda was to have it such that bad men could do least harm. That has a trade-off which means that we're going to have rules with buying government so that if we did have a good man who could do great things, he's going to be constrained in his ability to do them. But the biggest concern was bad men doing harm. So let's build rules that will have bad men do least harm. But over the last 20 years, the uh, maybe even longer, obviously longer, the slow granting of executive privileges have in fact allowed the executive to have more and more and more power. And so then it becomes not a question of the institutional rules, but whose who's clown is in power, right? And so if you're on this side, you're like, oh, I hate the guys on the other side, but my side's in power so they can have all the power. And then when the other team gets in, you're like, oh no. So it's all about team affiliation and mood affiliation. What it should be about is the rules that bind. So anytime anyone says, I have a pen, keep in mind that someday the person that might have a pen, you know, has an orange taint to them and and is a little unusual. And you might say, oh, my God, are we really giving that much power over them? Liberalism was a doctrine that tried to eradicate that kind of power structures. And we have made concession after concession after concession, especially during militarization, to executive privileges, which in fact make it the case that we might not be as robust when we test our institutions as we might have been at an earlier period of time. If constitutions don't pinch but always bend, they're not really a constitution. And this is our this is our concern. So where does the liberal project go? It has to go start from the idea of reconstructing first the vision of a society of free and responsible individuals and then make that attractive so that people see that they shouldn't fear they should you know they, there's tremendous opportunity from interacting with the other i mean this is one of the great tensions you know of course in hayek is because he identifies from our evolutionary past we have in-group affiliations 
But the great society, cosmopolitan liberalism, requires outgroup interaction and trust and whatnot. How do you build? Institutions allow us to build that. If you delegitimize those institutions of the cosmopolitan liberal order, which is what the populists are doing, you end up back with in-group affiliation. How do you then rebuild the trust in these cosmopolitan interactions, globalization, free trade, that kind of stuff? How are we going to rebuild all of that? That's a challenge that the young people that are, you know, getting interested in these ideas today hopefully need to pick up and go further with. Peter Betke is author of F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy, and Social Philosophy, published by Paul Grave. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 